0: Well, welcome to Lesson 3 of Movement Matters: A Forced Perspective of New Testament Restoration. My name is Steve Carr, and I have created this curriculum to guide you into learning more about the Restoration Movement if you have found us on a podcast server that's great but there are more resources to be had for your studies if you go to www.houseofcar.com slash movement that's house of car C A R R R R R R just two r's Houseofcar.com slash movement. You'll be able to download the resources that you need. There are videos online that are still there for free. There are application articles. There are um, resources if you're going to use this in a small group training. It's all there. It's all free because I am excited about this type of content. I want to make sure that you have the place to be able to learn more about the restoration movement and why it still matters. So, hey, thanks for joining me, not just for this lesson, for previous lessons. We are on lesson free free lesson 3. And I messed it up because lesson 3 is freedom, the force of freedom, and that is what we will explore here in this lesson. The force of freedom part 1 secret underwear oh i know i have you interested now but let me introduce you to two men their lives on the surface appear incredibly similar they they seem to be mirror images of each other neither man had deep american roots both their families immigrated from great britain one from ireland one from scotland both were influenced by farming in their lives. Both spent considerable parts of their lives near Pittsburgh. Both were self-educated, both were dynamic preachers, both were accomplished writers, both men shared a love for the scriptures and pursued the restoration of New Testament Christianity, and and both men knew each other well. One was the apprentice, the other was the teacher. And they would have long conversations of their shared calling. For a time, the two men were inseparable. But from our vantage point today, Alexander Campbell and Sidney Rigdon could not be any more different. Now, as we mentioned in Lesson 2, to understand the Restoration Movement means understanding Alexander Campbell— his shadow still looms large over our fellowship of churches to this day. There are, there are numerous biographies of his life that you can seek out to find out more about him, but a brief stab at putting this into context that many may understand, Lynn manuel Miranda uh, was inspired by Ron Chernow to write Hamilton. The impression was that he was one of the most brilliant men that no one knew about. I would suggest that Alexander Campbell is the Hamilton, the Alexander Hamilton of the church in the United States. Uh, He was probably known for writing as if he was running out of time, writing all night as if he's running out of time. His sheer presence likely jettisoned the success of the Restoration Movement. Now, I can talk all day about Alexander Campbell— But interestingly enough, even though you might not know about him, Sidney Rigdon is perhaps even better known than Campbell. Even though Rigdon was the student to Campbell's teacher, his influence really even on America was perhaps even greater. Here's a tidbit that is often overlooked. The Restoration Movement (laughs) is actually the roots for the Mormon Church. (laughs) Campbell, Alexander Campbell... Uh, was the first of the two men to pursue the restoration of the New Testament. But when Sidney Rigdon heard Alexander Campbell preach, he found a cause and a man to believe in. Rigdon became one of Campbell's most faithful followers. Yet Rigdon was fascinated by the concept of biblical liberty. And he he also saw this, and remember we we talked about this in the last lesson, that uh, the American aspect of the restoration movement, this frontier aspect made it entrepreneurial, and and that's one of the reasons that it really took off, because there was experimentation. Rigdon saw that opportunity to be able to become part of this movement and to become somebody. He— Though doing so, started to disagree with his mentor and argue with him more and more. And right about the time when he was becoming a little disenchanted in his relationship with Alexander Campbell, he met some of the disciples of a man named Joseph Smith. Now, this is why it's interesting. This is why there's there's roots of Mormonism. They come from the Restoration Movement because Smith was – Committed to a variant of biblical restoration, but the way he viewed it, he thought that the Bible was less important than his personal revelations. Like S- Smith claimed that he was the one who had complete knowledge of what it meant to restore the church of Christ, and that was made known to him via an angel. And some gold plates on which was written, uh, Mormon Inspiration. Um, Rigdon bought in. He was compelled by Joseph Smith and shifted his allegiance away from Alexander Campbell. So at the time, Sidney Rigdon was leading a Christian church in Kirtland, Ohio, up in northern Ohio. He led his church— to leave the restoration movement and to join the mormon movement and that's why that christian church at kirtland later becomes the very first mormon temple it was a key location in joseph smith's new church of christ parentheses of latter-day saints um I love Sidney Rigdon because so many people in the Restoration movement are unfamiliar with him. So just a, a little bit quickly on what happens with Rigdon's life. He rose quickly through the ranks of Mormon church hierarchy, but he was uh, not really great at maneuvering through the politics of that emerging cult. Smith – Declared himself to be a church prophet. Um, so Joseph Smith actually had a high view of Rigdon, even though they had a contentious relationship. So after Joseph Smith was killed in Missouri, Rigdon became uh, tied to a power struggle of the Mormon church and uh, one he eventually lost to Brigham Young. And uh, Rigdon then decided to start his very own faction of Mormonism that he supervised until he died in 1876. So understanding that Sidney Rigdon, then, was one of the most influential figures in Mormonism, he was a master of the written word, and and there are credible theories that suggest that it was Sidney Rigdon who wrote the book Of Mormon. And I ask you then, where would he have learned the value of becoming a strong writer? Perhaps it was those years that he was under the tutelage of Alexander Campbell? So that's as I look at the Restoration Movement and we see what it's done for the restoration of the New Testament. But at the same time, one could say that the Restoration Movement also is why the Mormon church exists as it does today. And that's not something that those of us who are part of this uh, tribe usually consider, that Mormonism likely doesn't happen without the Restoration Movement. So when I hear something like this, I pause and I think to myself, how did this happen, right? I mean, uh, you know, we outlined some of the events, but what leads us to be able to have this movement that spawns off uh, a massive cult, right? And I would offer that it is because of what we are going to discuss today, this force of freedom, that the restoration movement, our fellowship, has a high esteem for the value of freedom. And it's this force, ...that not only influenced the founding of the Restoration Movement... ...but still is active and critical today. To part two. Killing in the name of. So in looking at freedom, we once again go back to Barton Stone. Remember we talked about him in the previous lesson. We described his involvement in the frontier era... ...and the forging together era. We remember that Barton Stone... Participated in the Cane Ridge Revival in August of 1801, and that this was part of a bigger movement in the United States at that time, a global movement, even the Second Great Awakening. This was a time at the end of the 18th century, right near the Revolutionary War, when people began to seek faith. More earnestly. But what we saw coming out of that war is that as people sought faith, they did so in unique ways. Specifically, people began to look at faith beyond denominations. Now, why was this the case? This is because coming out of the Revolutionary War in the United States, the establishment of religious freedom facilitated new expressions of Christianity. And that's why we look at Barton Stone and I always say his band of merry men, his fellow Presbyterian ministers who were there with him at Cane Ridge. Even though they were Presbyterian and part of this denomination, they were contemplating the concept of freedom. Because was it possible for them to continue to be Presbyterian and pursue what they perceived as biblical practices? And the answer to that question is apparently not because in Presbyterianism, each regional area had a state synod that oversaw the churches in the region. OK, synod. It's the, the word is S-Y-N-O-D, synod. And the synod was the governing body the, – the, one more time for me. The synod was the governing body that oversaw all the practices and doctrine of the individual churches. So – 1801, August, you had the Cane Ridge Revival, and following the revival, Stone and his friends were were still even chewing on what happened then, and they were brought up on charges by their state synod. They were concerned about what happened at this revival because apparently in the midst of the Cane Ridge Revival, they permitted things that weren't Actually Presbyterian. They they violated some of the rules uh, and beliefs and practices of what it meant to be Presbyterian. Um, the ministers stood up to these charges and they said, Look, we can see that what we did might have been against Presbyterianism, but we hold that they are biblical and therefore they're okay. And to that, the synod didn't care. <laughs> they didn't care. It didn't matter. The ministers were still censored. You know, they were reprimanded by the synod because of what happened at the Cambridge revival. So, again, this thrust those ministers in central Kentucky into even more contemplation because they looked to the Bible and they were convinced that they had acted biblically. So, instead of just accepting their punishment and moving on, they went to their churches and convinced them that it was in their best interest interests to move away from the synod so what they did is they withdrew from the synod and then they immediately created their own independent presbytery so this would have been their own hierarchy their own group of church leadership uh but it was the structure under which multiple churches existed so it was a presbytery so there was still this hierarchy but it was independent in nature. Now, I I tell this part of the story is because it illustrates to us how these young Americans – and I'm not saying that they were youthful in age, but the country was new at that time – is how these American believers perceived their own freedom. See, in this era, starting a new network, although it fit within what you could say Americanism was, it was still countercultural, especially when it came to churches because church affiliations – Ran deep, there were roots there, denominations were incredibly important. People could chart through records of decades and generations how their forefathers had been parts of the church years and years and years. There were deep, significant roots that existed within people 's faith alliance. I mean, some of these ties, even trace back before America and stretch back to Europe, okay? But as as you and I look at that, I think there's a value that we might hold towards history, towards tradition, towards richness. But at this time, especially in history, as people were coming to grips of what it meant to live in a country where you could operate in religious freedom, they started to question it and this, this time, the idea of deep roots were probably less important than ever. See, in those early 1800s, Americans were trying on freedom for size. They didn't know exactly what it meant to live with such independence. I mean just, just for an example, even the fact that they were on the frontier, do you realize that the British forbade the colonists to expand away from the coast beyond the Appalachian Mountains – That's why areas like Western Pennsylvania and Ohio and Kentucky, you know, those places were known as the frontier because they were, the colonists were not permitted to go there. But now here they were on the frontier with people continuing to push west. And as they were pushing geographically, the people at the time were starting to push. The boundaries of all things even on faith. So I'm just telling you, 50 years earlier before Cain Ridge, the concept that they would have responded by starting a new presbytery, it never would have been considered. Never would have even been an option. But but, in post-revolutionary America, when American citizens had freedom of religion… When the Bill of Rights assured each citizen that they were allowed to exercise their faith in their own terms, it was natural for a group of ministers to start their own presbytery. They rebelled against tyranny, against this authority, against something they even deemed unbiblical to try a new expression on their own. So let's go forward. Little ways to 1803. So these rebellious ministers who started their own presbytery, they named it the Springfield Presbytery, it was in central Kentucky. Started with about 15 different churches that were working together. Now, independently, these churches were trying to feel out what it meant to establish a more biblical Christianity. But as they did so, they searched the Bible. And interestingly enough, the ministers were searching for the president for presbyteries, and it was not there. So how do you really make a biblical presbytery? The answer is you don't. You can't do it. So they actually dissolved it. The Springfield Presbytery, what these ministers helped create, lasted less than a year. It dissolved as they chose then to operate as independent, autonomous congregations. They detailed their thought process in all this in a revered restoration movement document. It's called The Last Will and Testament of the Springfield Presbytery, I think I have it in the online notes. I think I have a copy of it there. If not, you can just Google it online. Last Will and Testament of the Springfield Presbytery. You will find it. <laughs> I, I love it. The document. It's interesting. It's a, this is a short read, but those cheeky ministers basically established a death document for their group. Like it's kind of morbid. But it's kind of hilarious. It was published in June 1804. I I tell people when I I teach this, think of it as a religious declaration of independence. The goal of the ministers, as it says in the document, was that the oppressed may go free and taste the sweets of gospel liberty. Man, we don't write that way anymore. I couldn't get away with that. But it's good stuff. That the oppressed may go free and taste the sweets of gospel liberty. That will get you diabetes right there. Okay. Let me give you another quote from the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. It also said – and again, it is written like a will, right? It says that we will that this body die, be dissolved, and sink into union with the body of Christ at large. For there is but one body and one spirit, even as we are all called in one hope of our calling. (laughs) Yeah, you guys you may think that these ministers just had way too much time on their hands, right? They're writing a, a a will for a church presbytery. But in essence, like I said, this was a declaration of independence. This was a line in the sand. It was a expression of freedom. And in some ways, though, it is that attitude. Is that embrace of freedom that permitted the restoration movement to grow it essentially copied the path of american liberty where previous generations were chained they were imprisoned they now had the key to unlock the chains and to be free part three feast or famine so what we need to do now is to think of these two stories You have Sidney Rigdon, and you have the death of the Springfield Presbytery. Okay, the first story we never tell, but that second story, that death of the Springfield Presbytery, if you're part of the Restoration Movement and you have done any studies of it, you have heard it before. This is the story that we shout from the rooftops. Now, why is that? Why have you heard all about the death of the Springfield Presbytery but virtually nothing about Sidney Rigdon? Why? Because it fits within how we prefer to think about freedom itself. And that's why we need to pause and we need to admit to ourselves that the, the practice of liberty – the practice of liberty is rarely perfect. Okay, I started this off in – our force of framing lesson, right? But let's let's consider this because we have to look at the story and view it from a transparent way, right? We have to look at the story and imagine that Jesus is the hero and therefore we are flawed. And doing so, it opens up the king to everything else. And that's what I want us to do at this point. Admit that the practice of liberty is rarely perfect, okay? So again, I am a citizen of the United States, but there are people living here who Part of the rest or people listening here, part of the restoration movement, who are not in the United States. So we have to understand is that, you know, this is, uh, you know, our American centric view. So let's just pause and look at this as we consider American freedom. Okay, this this liberty is oftentimes the envy of people who are not American. Right? We have certain liberties and freedoms that other people wish they had. But but there are many times that our independence has brought about global strife. Okay, we, we Americans boast about our independence, but that same freedom can become a source of pain for others because that practice of freedom – is sometimes used to excuse the vilest of acts. Likewise, this can be true within the confines of our religious liberty, okay? That sometimes that religious liberty frees people from spiritual bondage, but in other instances, it can put people in new chains, that's why I tell people there's there's two sides to the force of freedom. There are those who desire to fully indulge in its fruits, and there are those who fast from freedom altogether. Those are the two extremes I want to look at, the extremes of gluttony and abstinence. So viewing gluttony in the Restoration Movement, let's go back to Sidney Rigdon. Rigdon's alignment with Alexander Campbell allowed him – The benefits of freedom. The restoration of the New Testament was empowering for someone like Rigdon. There was no hierarchy in a non-denominational fellowship. And what this did was open the opportunity for preachers who might not have had the credentials or the family lineage to be able to pursue a pathway toward prominence. But when Rigdon met Joseph Smith, I believe he perceived an even greater opportunity See, in Mormonism, there was a sense of hierarchy. Essentially, Rigdon, by becoming Mormon, could gain more than mere notoriety. He could actually become a prophet. He could speak for God himself. And ultimately, he could further his position in the world. You have to think that the allure of that type of freedom was intoxicating, right? It was a drug, and Rigdon overindulged. He overindulged to the point that he completely abandoned biblical authority altogether, so he clung on to the freedom and liberty and the independence that the scriptures offered, but he left the Bible in the wake. And ultimately, freedom led to Sidney Rigdon's downfall. Now, as much as that's easy to get into critique somebody who lived that long ago, we shouldn't be surprised at Rigdon's action here. I mean, it's not uncommon for people to practice their freedom and end up doing so in gluttony. Just think about a typical teenager, right? Teenagers are on the cusp of adulthood. As you get older, your teens are given more opportunities. In which they can exercise their independence. But how do teenagers respond to that, right? Here's the keys to the car. Just be responsible. Are you kidding? Come on. Like, you know, and as much as you think this is commentary on this wayward generation, y'all, we did it better ourselves back in the day, right? As teens, you are – you're missing curfew, you're driving too fast, you're, you're spending your money wastefully, right? Teenagers generally lack the maturity to handle autonomy great, fully. And the irony, though, if you think I'm dumping on our poor teenagers here, many adults don't perform much better with that same freedom. I was looking at the New Testament because it teaches about the exploitation of freedom. And that's the irony, right? The exploitation of our freedom can lead to slavery. The Apostle Paul talks about this and refers to it as the captivity of the flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, he teaches about spiritual liberation, and he said that is found in obeying the commands of God. It seems paradoxical that the way that we find freedom is to live in obedience, and you know what? If you tell a lot of Americans that and we're in this time in our country where we're still coming out of a time of quarantine from the COVID-19 virus and people were questioning what freedom is, friends. But even the idea that you know you become liberated, liberated through obedience, that's tough for some – in our country, in the United States to accept, and even for Christians, the, the approach to freedom that that is obedience, that seems unpatriotic. Americans prefer liberty that permits us to do whatever we like, whatever we please. Friends, Christians generally view it the same. But the biblical perspective of freedom, while seeming less empowering, actually gets us to where we ultimately want to be. It's the ability to refrain from doing something that we easily could. Now, on the other side of this, let's consider abstinence. There are those who take freedom to the other extreme and avoid it altogether. And we're going to talk about this approach to independence in the movement in a later lesson. But this is generally what took place in the 20th century with this rise of theological liberalism. Leaders were afraid that unchecked freedom could eventually lead to heresy and some churches and organizations took a very hard-line approach to liberty. They they downplayed freedom, and they talked about the Bible delivering a call to live in separation from the world. It was it was an, an abstinent approach to freedom. Uh, and in doing so, you can create boundaries, right? You're clearly defined lines of what one can do, with whom you can do it. Uh, and then when we do so, generally and, – and this again is that – Hard orthodoxy view of it as we develop in-depth doctrinal statements that are crafted for every imaginable situation, and in this way, there's no mistake how a proper Christian should behave. And in a policy of abstinence, right, restrictive limits the restraint limits the needs for our decision making making. Like when we, when we have these limits, then it becomes just mindless obedience. But there's a negativity there too. It eliminates the risk of freedom. So stick with me because it's true that the shackling freedom it might prevent false teachings, but it can also lead to the creation of even new sins. It prevents people from exercising freedom, and that creates issues. Specifically, the creation of extra biblical commands. That's how the Pharisees ruled in the first century the, the context of Jesus' ministry. They employed an abstinence approach to freedom. They, they, they did what was known as building a hedge around the law. It was an extra layer of commands that were beyond biblical commandment. They believed it kept humans at a safe distance from apparent evils. But while this approach appeared to provide security, it fueled new dangers. Abstaining from freedom easily becomes legalism. It denigrates to a work-based approach to salvation. So regardless of however you approach freedom, it always comes at a cost. We've witnessed this in American history. As much as we value our independence, blood was shed to achieve it. And in order to maintain our system, sometimes we have to sacrifice liberties. You know, people have been falsely imprisoned for crimes they didn't commit. We witness the cost of freedom when we look at the Restoration Movement as well. Think back to the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. If you research and you look at the bottom of the page, there are a list of six original signers to the document. But within a few years, only two of the original men continued to stand up for the restoration of the New Testament. Two of the men went back to Presbyterianism and continued on as ministers. They recanted their wayward positions. Um, But as much as that sounds like a spiritual rendering, I I would offer that, you know, the reason that they left was the restoration (laughs) movement at that time didn't have paid ministers. So— This freedom actually costs them income. They wouldn't have been uh, compensated for being restoration movement ministers, but they would have if they were back part of the presbytery. So the ideals of freedom may be strong, but they always come at a steep price. And that's why looking at this force of freedom, it's also been – always been responsible for both good and bad in the Restoration Movement. At its worst, freedom enslaves us. It empowers false teaching. Freedom can excuse the creation of new cults, denominations, and creeds. Freedom can create new fears that keep us from risks. And when mishandled, it can thwart gospel effectiveness and lead people astray. But at its best, freedom makes us revolutionaries. It permits us to – Harness the adventurous spirit of the very first Christians. Freedom can destroy the influence of cults, denominations, and creeds. When utilized well, it can release the power of the gospel to transform eternity. So, my takeaway from this, and this is a message for you and I and a lesson for our movement, is that freedom demands an attitude of humility. Of the many things I would say about the restoration movement, I'm not sure I would describe us as being humble. Much like U.S. history, our fellowship tends to celebrate the bold and the boisterous. On the surface, this seems fine because we want to celebrate risk-takers that secured independence, right? But if we are redemptional, we must elevate the true hero of our story. And where does that sit? Reminder of what we said. Jesus is the true hero of the story. Jesus is the true source of freedom. But even better, Jesus is the perfect model of humility. One of my favorite New Testament passages in Philippians 2, Paul emphasizes uh, Jesus' humility, but he does so through the crucifixion story. Right? Even though Jesus was creator of the universe, he set that power aside. He chose to walk earth with us. And then he lays it all down. He lays it all down and takes it to the cross. The idea that the God of the universe considered others better than himself is extraordinary. On the cross, he became a slave to death, but he brought us new life. And for us to redeem the force of freedom, we should be like Jesus – But as much as many of us strive to be like Jesus, we have a framed view of that, right? It's perspectival. We want to be the Jesus raging through the temple to clear out the money changers, standing up to the religious leaders when we really would be better off imitating the Jesus who pauses and sits with the little children. I believe that submission and surrender are two of Jesus' most impressive traits. And again, I know that's preaching to the choir here, right? But it's essential for us to look at in the restoration movement, for us to understand that everything, we bring this back to biblical authority. All right? And that is something that we in the restoration movement must do. But they're out there, those countless, unnoticeable servants who are living life in humility. They might not be on stage at conventions or in the pages of magazines. They might not hold positions of prominence. They may not lead massive churches or oversee significant ministries. But they exercise their freedom in discreet and mighty ways. They spent their lives as missionaries on foreign fields. They worked in the registrar offices at Bible colleges. They taught Sunday school at rural churches. We don't think of them as revolutionaries. But they were abolitionists in the fight against spiritual slavery. And these liberators have brandished the posture of humility. They frame freedom in its proper context. It's unlocked for the benefit of future generations and their actions bring focus back to Christ. They don't need to be the prophet because they listen to the prophets before them and they respond to their teachings and they live humbly live humbly y'all that's the force of freedom all right thanks for joining me for this lesson there are other application article and uh discussion questions on the website www.houseofcar.com slash movement go grab those resources there because the movement matters the movement matters see you next time